Hi, and welcome to Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Author of Remembered, I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. I'm a writer, host, presenter, academic, and a reader. I love being read to. In each podcast episode, a writer will read to us and answer three questions. We might talk about how they developed the characters, the sense of place, why they wrote the book, something they learned through research, and more. Ultimately, through each episode, I hope to get to know each author a little more, and I hope that you do too. Each episode is about 30 minutes. You'll find the author's bio and a bit about the book below the episode. Thanks for joining in. So, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us for Bookable Space Audio Literary Salon. Thank you so much for having me, and congratulations on this endeavor. Oh, thank you, and congratulations on your book. I appreciate it. I'm I'm really thrilled and excited to be sharing it with the world. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So let's dive right in. So I'm really nosy as a reader and I think as an author, and I always want to know the story behind the writing and you know, what came before the book. So could you tell us a little bit about what led to Imagining Elsewhere? Absolutely. Well, one of the things that, you know, I think as an author, you'll understand that our ideas come from numerous places and it's often pulling together several different strands and kind of braiding them together in a way that sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. With this book in particular, I really was taken as a child with the Twilight Zone. And there was one episode in particular, it's called It's a Good Life, which maybe people don't recognize the title, but if you were a Twilight Zone fan, the kind of catchphrase of the villainous character was, I'll wish you away to the cornfield. And what the story was, was that there was like a little boy in a remote town and he had this kind of supernatural ability to control other people. And if he didn't like what you said or did or even thought, he would wish you away to the cornfield and you'd you'd be dead. And I remember finding this particularly terrifying as a child. And it was an episode, it was one of my favorite episodes. It really, really scared me, which is something as an adult, I was curious about like, what was so compelling to me about this particular story? Mm. And, and I can only speculate, there's only so much self therapy, I think we can do. But I think I was afraid, as many of us are of like the powerful child of the kind of unleashed or off the chain, (laughs) precocious, kid who really hasn't developed a moral compass yet, right? Mm -hmm. And so we see that in, I think we see that figure in a couple different stories. The one that's bringing to mind right now is Game of Thrones, there was like the Prince Joffrey character, where you have like an adolescent boy and, and he's just terrible. And and on the one hand, he's such a great villain. He's so despicable. But on the other hand, there's something really tragic about a kid who no one says no to. And we see it in celebrity culture, right? We see it kind of as a, a, a cross genre, across narrative. So I was fascinated by this idea. I wonder, again, in my own kind of self-analysis, if there was a part of me that was so intrigued by this idea or scared by it, because it does ask the question of if you could do anything. If you were all powerful, what would you do? And Mm. would you be a good person? You know, I think we all like to believe that, of course, we'd continue to be ethical and responsible and moral. But it's really scary to consider maybe what we'd be capable of Mm. if, if, in fact, there were no checks on our power. So that was the kind of idea that that kind of 
uh, kept coming back to even as an adult. And when I was thinking about it one day, I wasn't necessarily even casting about for an idea, but I'm, I'm a big what ifer. like, what if this <laughs> happened? And, and I think as authors and creators, right, that's something that we do. And I thought like, well, what if that story had been told it was like a little girl? Like, would that have changed the dynamic of the story? And then I started to wonder, like, what if it was a teenage girl? Like, what if she made it to teenagehood? What would her whims look like then? So in my very kind of first incarnation of the story, I was really interested in kind of what would it be like if a teenage girl was all powerful? And it wasn't a story that I had seen told a lot before. And I do feel like we have a lot of stories about teenage girls who are like witches, and that plays a role in this book as well, but not quite with like being really the queen in some ways of this community. As I continued to develop the thinking around it, one of the things that I went up kind of one of the strands that got woven in was the idea of setting it in the 80s. Mm. And in some ways, what I wanted to do was both write kind of an homage to some of the 80s movies that informed my young mind about what teenagehood and high school would be like, but also to critique those in a way that as I became an adult, I was really disappointed to watch a lot of that Mm. media again. I actually have a footnote about that in the book, which I'll I'll talk about my footnotes. But the idea being that, so Candy is this teenager in the town of elsewhere. And she too, because it's set in the 80s, she's seen these movies as well. And she would like to be living this life that she sees in the movies, like perhaps we all do, right? But she has no sort of, again, checks on her power or reality checks either. So everything in this town is kind of a facsimile of what Candy thinks being a teenager should be like. So there's a lot of performance, mm-hmm. right? There's there's a football team and a cheerleading squad, completely performative. There's never any games, you know? Oh, um, wow. So so that's kind of like where I took this one idea of the, the remote town, the powerful child, and then also the 80s and kind of what that might look like in this particular setting. I love that it was, in, that you were influenced by this story from like from your childhood, from watching this and in a way it seems like confronting your fears and Mm -hmm. also like analyzing them and unpicking them, but using them for like taking the power from them and putting that power into you as well. That's an interesting way of looking at it for sure. Yeah. Oh, wow. So could we have a reading please? Yes, I would love to read. I think as we've discussed, I'm going to do a couple different readings, but I think what I'm going to do is read a little bit of the first chapter, then a little bit more of the first chapter, and then conclude the first chapter. Um, What I do just want to give you a heads up about is that I use footnotes. So there'll be times when I'll I'll read, I'll say footnote one, and then I'll kind of go into the marginal footnote, and then we'll come back. Um, All right, chapter one, Imagining Elsewhere. Moments after she met Candy Clifton for the first time, Astrid Friedman Smith experienced a sinking feeling of recognition. She knew karma when it came around to bite her in the... It was on the very first day at her new school that Astrid found herself flying, literally flying, across the cafeteria and then falling face down on the polished linoleum while her classmates laughed and threw milk cartons and french fries at her. She knew she deserved it, especially because her own poor choices had been one of the main reasons she was at this new school in the first place. It was the fall of 1988 when they moved from Queens to elsewhere, New York, in part because Astrid had a not so insignificant problem with bullying and harassing other students, a problem so big, in fact, that it had made the New York area tabloid newspapers, which ran third and fourth page headlines like, quote, high performing high schoolers get an A plus in cruelty, unquote, and 
out on her Astrid, lead bully expelled from prep school, unquote. Footnote one, but we'll get to that. Astrid had lived in elsewhere for a full two weeks before the first day in the cafeteria, and she'd still believed that the move had been punishment enough. This was partly because before the move, when Astrid had looked up elsewhere in the World Book Encyclopedia, all she was able to discover that it was a small, economically depressed community where the high taxes were matched only by a startlingly high suicide rates. Footnote two, the World Book Encyclopedia, basically hard copies of Wikipedia. Big books in an alphabetical set, they covered lots of topics, but they were sort of limited. For example, there was no entry for anything really contemporary, and there was no good sex stuff, much to the dismay of many middle schoolers. Some real small town values right there, Astrid had thought. She'd imagined that if she could simply survive her senior year at Elsewhere High, she'd be fine. She had no idea that surviving elsewhere might actually be a challenge. Wow. What the, that's quite the opening. <laughs> Thank um, you. You're welcome. I love the attention. Where did you come up with it? Like for the name of the town, you know, so it did crack me up because there was a conjunction in yours in like in the reading. And so there's going to be a conjunction in my question as well. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready for it. Thank you. So how did you decide the name of the town and how did you develop Astrid as a character? So there were, I'm very interested in place. I know that this is also something that you have written about. I'm very interested in place. I'm very interested in place names. And kind of tangentially, I have another, I have a novella with Running Wild Press called Great Expectations. And that novella is set in a town called Miserable, Wisconsin, which is not a real place. But you know, I, that, for that story, the germ of that idea was, I don't even know how it came into my head, but I thought, imagine living in a place called miserable. Like what kind of person would stay in a place called miserable? And the, and a whole cast of characters kind of walked out of that question. I think similarly with elsewhere that, you know, there are these kind of great names for rural communities in Western New York that sometimes are really surprising. And there is no actual on the map, at least elsewhere, but I did want to explore this idea of elsewhere being kind of a literal somewhere else for Astrid, right? As well as, as Candy says in the book, elsewhere is the state of mind, right? Mm. That it is, in fact, we're taking kind of this psychological journey, which kind of harkens back to the first question a little bit, which is to say that that was one of the things that I was also really interested in is this uh, kind of those like 19... 50s, 60s, 70s psychological experiments where they would like kind of see what people would do again if they could get away mm. with it. So we have like Zimbardo and, and the Stanford prison experiment where basically they had some college kids being the inmates and some college kids being the jailers. Mm. And to see how just in a matter of hours when they were given kind of the authority, so the permission to be cruel, but also like the imperative, like you're a guard, so you have to be mean to these other kids. They took it so seriously and to such an extreme that they had to stop the experiment, right? Mm. Because even though these were arbitrary distinctions between the two groups of kids, and I'm calling them kids, they're college age men. Yeah. <laughs> They immediately inhabited superior roles, right? So this idea of what we're capable of if we are given both permission and, I guess, um, opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where I was coming from with that. Now, I forgot the second half of the conjunction and Astrid. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit how you developed Astrid as a character? I oh, love character-driven prose. 
Absolutely. Well, I think that, and this is something that comes up kind of right away in, in the book, I really wanted to write a, a truly imperfect protagonist, female protagonist, mm. right? And not the kind of like, she's just clumsy, but she's yeah. also beautiful and charming. Like, like she really is imperfect. So it's it's referenced in the part that I just read that she's actually gotten in a lot of trouble for, for bullying herself. And gets a little, you know, it's explained a little bit more in the book what what precipitated the move. But part of it was that she was kicked out of school mm-hmm. because she was pretty uh, merciless in her treatment of another student. Her mother had to homeschool her for her a year. And then her mother had this job opportunity, so they moved upstate, and it's supposedly a, a new start. And I don't think I'm giving anything away to say that for the, at least the first quarter, if not more, of the novel, Astrid is still very much saying that she's sorry, but not feeling sorry. Like, she's sorry mm-hmm. she got caught, right? Mm-hmm. Making a lot of excuses, like, I didn't know she was going to take it like that. Or, you know, nobody else got in trouble like I did kind of Mm. attitudes. So part of her journey is to kind of know what it means to actually feel penitent for something. And then also to be faced with the choice of what, what kind of person she wants to be, right? Does she, if she has the opportunity again to bully, even if that means kind of protecting herself and her family, is she going to revert to that to that role? Or is she going to risk persecution and try to do what's right? So that's really her kind of crossroads that she's going to reach in the novel. And again, I didn't want to make that an easy decision for her. In fact, I would say that her first impulse is kind of just a bully. Yeah, yeah. I quite I find it really fascinating. If she were here, what would you or Astrid want readers to know about her? Well, I think I think that she, I think if Astrid was here, she would say, I'm not a bad person. I swear I'm a good person. Right. And I think that what I would say about Astrid and maybe about all of us or, or maybe what one of the takeaways from the book I hope readers can can get is that many of us throughout our lives are on different are, are inhabit different roles in the bullying mm-hmm. dynamic. Right. So I think that it's probably true that very often someone who is perhaps being bullied at home goes ahead and bullies someone at school or vice versa. Mm. Right. Someone who's perhaps being picked on at school goes home and treats his little sister like garbage. So we we have to be aware of that, I think, across our lives. And yeah. so this isn't just for kids or teenagers or even young adults. This is for all of us. You know, our, I, I don't want to be a bully in the classroom. Mm-hmm. I also don't want to be bullied by my students, right? right? But, but to be aware of power and to be aware of when we, we have power and when we don't have power and to just always be kind of responsible and humane. And maybe the bigger thing is, you know, really asking ourselves, who do you want to be? And trying to bring that awareness to the different parts of our lives. Oh, I love that. With that in mind, could we have another reading, please? Yes. So I will pick up where I left off. Here we are, you know, again, she's just kind of (laughs) introduced how she arrived in Elsewhere. And now she's in the cafeteria. She'd heard of Candy before she'd met her and even seen a picture of her. For some inexplicable reason, there was a lurid painting of a 12-year-old Candy hanging up in the public library. From what Astrid had gathered, this candy girl, despite only being in high school, ran the town of Elsewhere. This made no sense to Astrid, but then again, there were a lot of things about her new town that she hadn't been able to fully comprehend. How was it possible, for example, that the town simply didn't have cable and barely got network television stations? Footnote three, 
Once upon a time, if you had a good antenna on the top of your house, your television was able to, quote, stream, unquote, not what we called it, seven or eight stations. And that was it. Or why was it that everyone was so scrawny and not in a fashionable New York way? They were unhealthy, sunken eyed and sallow looking. And why, at least if the classes Astrid had attended that first day were any indication, did no one seem all that concerned with attendance, academics, or really anything close to scholarly rigor at Elsewhere High? Astrid couldn't answer these questions or couldn't ask these questions, though, because up until the day she met Candy, no one was willing to actually speak to her. All of her overtures of friendship had been met with either blank indifference, nervous giggling, or wide-eyed outright fear. That all changed the day she met Candy. Astrid was sitting alone at the end of a long table, except for a cute, nerdy kid alone at the other end, who was immersed in a D&D rule book. Astrid was strategically, sensorially cocooned, the cure blasting on her headphones, eyes glued to her blue binder on which she was putting the finishing touches on an elaborate rendering of the words, the sugar cubes, and chewing on the turkey sandwich she just bought and then customized, removing the turkey and putting chips in its place. She'd almost forgotten herself, munching away. When a strange sensation overtook her, it was as though someone had thrown a big down comforter over the entire cafeteria. She looked up to see that everyone was talking differently, standing differently. They had an unconvincing nonchalance about them, as though a camera crew had entered the room and they were trying to act natural. And then there she was, Candy. She wore a white cinch belt over a skin-tight pink dress, layered pink and white socks and white kid sneakers, and dozens of bracelets on each arm. Her voluminous blonde hair, which framed her face like a lion's mane, added several inches to her height. She walked like a runway model, drawing each knee up before shooting her pointed foot forward like an archer drawing an arrow. Lift, shoot, lift, shoot. Other students parted to let her pass. She was flanked with the girl on each side, who walked just a little bit behind her, reminding Astrid of the V-shaped formation birds flew in. Frozen mid-chew, Astrid wondered if they had planned the entrance. It felt like something out of a John Hughes movie, footnote five. John Hughes made a bunch of 80s movies that, for many of us, really captured the 80s teen experience. Be warned, though, like a lot of 80s pop culture, they're totally racist and sexist. Back to the book. Perhaps the music still streaming into Astrid's ears helped, giving the trio's dramatic march a soundtrack as it became clear the girls were headed toward Astrid, Astrid's tablemate quickly put the rule book in his pocket and scurried away. Astrid longed to follow him, but was pinned in place as Candy, with a flip of her magnificent hair, rested, rested her gaze on Astrid's face. Awkwardly, Astrid put down the pen she was gripping and, despite her churning stomach, forced a hopeful smile. Astrid, who had been popular, really popular at her old school, thought maybe this would be her chance, her introduction into the upper echelons of elsewhere society. She willed herself to play it cool, or at least coolish. Astrid crossed her arms and regarded her. Astrid, stop smiling. I'll stop there. Oh, wow. You know, it's funny. So when you were talking about it being set in the 80s and, and being able to kind of play with some of those tropes and the idea of what, like some of the things that I remember watching in the 80s, and I also remember trying to watch with my children, like some of those movies and being like, oh my gosh, like I did not remember this or how didn't I notice that? And this we like cannot get through like, you know, a fair bit of them. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious what the 80s made possible in the book, like that and also the research that you did in order to bring the 80s, you know, to life. 
Well, I do think that I had a very similar experience and I can even think of one in particular. I, I, for some reason we had a videotape of 16 candles, which was like a maybe 1986 John Hughes movie that I watched a lot as a young person. I thought it was hilarious. And I was like an adult and it was on TV. And so I was watching it with a friend and she happened to be Asian American. And I don't know if you remember, but a lot of the gags are about an Asian American kid in that movie. And I was so remorseful and humiliated. Like, like, and she was kind of like, really? Like you're like, she had never seen it. And she, she Mm. was surprised and uh, a little horrified. And I felt really embarrassed, you know? And, um, I don't know even if at that time I was really equipped to kind of articulate, you know, my embarrassment and just being like, oh my gosh, I just never, I, I, because of my privilege had never looked at it that way before. Cause Mm -hmm. I had, didn't have to, it's also very date rapey that one as well. And, you know, it's, there's a, just a lot of really creepy aspects that have made it really ha, have made it really you know not something that I necessarily want to show to my kids without mm. perhaps uh, having a real conversation I guess or maybe when they're much older but so it's hard I think it's hard to love something that hates you yeah definitely <laughs> um, and or that hates the values or or is uh uh, runs counter to your values. And that, and that's something I'm very interested in both as an author, as a creative writer, but also as an academic writer, which was my background before I turned to creative writing, kind of thinking through how we can kind of deal with media that runs counter to our values. And so in some ways, this is a book that also tries to grapple with that. Probably it's my own kind of therapeutic, you know, like looking at some of the uh, the culture that I didn't look at critically when I was younger and and trying to look at it in a new way. No, I think that makes complete sense because it's, it's interesting because I know when I speak to my younger son, he kind of says it like, mm, that was the 80s. Like as if, you know, can you expect any better from you? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking like, I'd like to say yes, but then it's hard to be like, it's hard to say that with conviction because like you said, if there are scenes and storylines and characters and all these things where you're like clearly not represented like carefully or even like truthfully or creatively, then it is hard to look back at those and to say, well, like people didn't know any better because actually people knew better. Mm -hmm. People always knew better. And there were always people watching these same movies going, this is offensive. This is this and this is that. And people somewhere going, who cares? It's not offensive to me, which Mm -hmm. is sometimes people's Mm -hmm. litmus test. So it's really interesting, like either having those conversations now and having some people who will say, well, like, oh, that's how it was. And it was never how things were. That was how certain people were allowed to frame it because they didn't care. Or because it made the money or not even or and because it made the money. Yeah, yeah, so it's absolutely. really interesting the things that are kind of like now off my, my list because really I don't have to watch these things that don't love mm-hmm. me and I won't I don't have to buy them. I don't have to support them. I don't have to share them with my children. But I do think you're right about the possibilities for conversation and to be like, wow, like, can you imagine, you know, can you believe someone got paid to write this? And um. <laughs> and, <laughs> So it, it it opens up some interesting questions, I think. And then what sort of research did you do to, you know, make the 80s come to life in the book? 
Well, I definitely revisited a lot of those those movies. I I def and I and the music. I tried to recover. I have to say that I wasn't a teenager in the eighties. I'm not quite that old, but I was old enough in the eighties to be watching movies about teenagers. Mm. So, in some ways, my it really was research in the sense that I did not have that experience. Like I went to high school, I guess, in the nineties, right? So that was a different you know, a whole different scene. So a lot of my research is, you know, was things like movies, right? Looking at, at movies and how movies, but, but continuing to, to have that awareness that that's a movie depiction of a certain world, right? Which allowed me, I think in some ways to inhabit that candy perspective, which again, she takes the movie depictions of, for example, suburban Illinois in John Hughes movies as a reality that she just doesn't have access to because she can never leave her little fiefdom. She can never leave her little town. So she wants to kind of recreate that as much as possible. Wow. And so with that in mind, can we have our final reading? Yes, absolutely. Uh, So where we left off, Candy has just approached where Astrid is sitting and Astrid kind of observes her. She's very, very beautiful. She looks like an aerobics video model. (laughs) uh, And that's a compliment. Okay. So Candy's lips moved, but her words were inaudible to Astrid, who still had music blaring into her ears. Astrid moved one of the headphones to the side and said, sorry, hi, what did you say? Candy widened and then narrowed her eyes. Astrid gave a closed lip smile and removed the headphones completely, pushing them down to rest around her neck. And after fumbling with the player, turning the music off. What's that? Candy said impatiently, gesturing towards the table. Is that a transistor radio? Astrid looked down in the back up at Candy. Yeah, basically, she said it, it's a tape player with headphones. It's uh, She didn't want to appear patronizing, but it seemed to Astrid that the other girl really didn't know. Upstate was behind the times in so many ways. It was possible that she hadn't heard of the invention yet. It's a Walkman? Candy hummed a low and lovely noise that could have meant comprehension or agreement or even disapproval. I'm Astrid, by the way, Astrid said. Astrid, Candy repeated archly. No one else in the cafeteria was even pretending not to watch them. Instead, they stood wide-eyed and spellbound. You're um, Candy, right? Astrid asked. She sat up a little straighter. It seemed to her that this might be an audition. Somehow, however, no one had given her the script. Candy stared stonily. I'll take it, the other girl said at last. What? Astrid asked. I want the radio, Candy said, and the headphones. Despite herself, Astrid felt her cheeks flush, her breathing coming too fast and shallow. She knew, she knew all too well from her past experiences that she had to somehow assert herself, make it clear that she wouldn't be pushed around. But having been on the other side of the situation, having been the bully, she also felt that she had too few options. She wasn't going to try to fight this girl, obviously. She was seriously outnumbered. But placidly handing over her brand new Walkman that she had used all of her money to buy would only make it clear that she was ripe for further exploitation and abuse. She concluded that she'd have to fall back on what she did best. Channeling her inner Heather, Astrid said, um, what's your damage? I don't know how they do things in elsewhere, but usually people in human society get to know each other, hang out, and then sure, maybe borrow each other's stuff once they're friends, which I have a feeling we are not going to be. So... That's a no. She closed with a mock sincere smile. Uh, Footnote eight, Heather Chandler, that is from the famous 1989 cult classic Heathers. A gasp went up from the audience. Instead of angry, Candy looked like an affronted teacher, her mouth agape in shock. 
It seems we have a misunderstanding, Candy said, adopting her own fake smile. This is how we do things in Elsewhere. She reached out a long arm and picked up the Walkman, but the headphones were still around Astrid's neck and she was pulled forward over the table before the headphones came free from the device, snapping back at her. Suddenly, a male voice called, get her, Candy, take her down. Astrid glanced over her shoulder. Her classmates, some with their arms folded across their chests, others leaning on each other jauntily, were no longer silently observing. They were murmuring, giggling. Astrid was alarmed to realize she didn't understand what was happening. What did that guy mean, get her? She regretted not scrambling away when the, uh, the nerd at the end of the table had. She was out of her depth with this girl. And yet Astrid couldn't or wouldn't completely abase herself, couldn't just walk away and let the other girl publicly rip her off. So staying the course, she began to step out from the picnic bench style cafeteria style table saying, oh my God, take a chill pill. I will loan it to you if you ask, but this is totally uncool. You're falling, Candy observed, her voice neutral. And she was right. As Astrid tried to slide out of her seat, her legs somehow became tangled in her backpack strap. Her arms were pinwheeling and her legs were shooting out behind her. Her half-eaten sandwich plopped to the ground beside Astrid as she landed painfully on her hands and knees, her palms pressing against the sticky floor. It was silent for a beat, and then suddenly, shockingly, everyone started laughing. The entire cafeteria was screaming and hooting. Astrid picked up the bag and scrambled to her feet, the blood rushing to her head, making her feel even dizzier. Her focus narrowed. She simply needed to escape this room. Why did the door seem so far away? <laughs> you can't stop falling, Candy laughed. And I'll I'll leave it there. It's not quite the end of the first chapter. Wow. It was such a, such a, I want to say fun, but such a, such an intense reading, but also <laughs> like, <laughs> thank you for taking us there. Thank you for taking us to elsewhere. Of course. Where can we buy, where would you like us to buy the book? Well, it is available anywhere you like to buy books, but I always do encourage folks to frequent their indies. One that I particularly love is from my hometown, Queens. It's Q and Willow, K-E-W and Willow Bookstore in, in Kew Gardens, Queens. That's one of my favorites. But bookshop.org also is a, a great resource to find maybe a, a bookstore you could support near you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you for being our guest here. Thanks for some engaging reading and for answering all the questions. Well, thank you for being such a, a generous and warm host. And again, I congratulate you and I look forward to listening to all of these podcasts. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Bookable Space. If you don't already have the book and want to read more, buy it, borrow it from your local library, read it, and if you enjoy it, review it if you haven't already. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon with your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Follow me on Twitter at YBattlefelton, on Instagram on why I write Battlefelton for pictures, interview insights, and more.